Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church, a campus of Mount Perrin North. We exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, and we hope that you are encouraged by today's message. A couple weeks ago, I was traveling, and I was with uh, some family members of mine. I was with my dad and my brother, but I was also with my grandfather, my uncle, and two of my cousins. And so my grandmother couldn't be there. She's been having some health issues the last few months, maybe the last year or so, and so she couldn't be there with us where we were at. And so we decided one time, you know, we're all together. That's very rare that so many of her, kind of her kids and grandkids are together. So we decided we were going to FaceTime her. So we were going to take our phone, get in the hotel lobby, and just FaceTime her and talk a little bit. We felt like that would encourage her a little bit because she was upset about not getting to be with us. And so we're a pretty loud bunch. So we were there in the hotel lobby, and we're talking and telling stories and being loud. And we, they told us to be quiet a couple of times. And so we're doing our best. And so my uncle decides to take out his phone, and he FaceTimes my grandmother. And we all tried to, like, fit in on the screen and so she could see us. But, you know, not everybody's as skinny as I am, so we couldn't all fit. And so y'all going to have to get with me today, all right? I'm just warming you up. Just going to have to get with me. But so we decided we're going to pass the phone around. Everybody's going to talk to her a little bit. And so my uncle started, I think, and then maybe my cousins and my dad and my grandfather, they're all talking a little bit. And I hear her saying these nice things to her, and uh, I hear her saying those nice things to them, I guess. And so they're talking, and she would say things to them like, oh, I love you. You know I love you. Oh, you're so sweet. You, I, you know how I think you're sweet. I mean, just stuff like that. that not make anybody feel good. And then it comes to me. And they hand me the phone, and I talk to her, and I call her Meemaw. I said, hey, Meemaw, how are you? Oh, baby, I'm doing so good. I'm doing better now that I'm talking to you. I said, well, I'm doing better now I'm talking to you. And she said, and she didn't say this to everybody, she said, baby, I remember when you were born. She said, I remember thinking that you were the most beautiful baby that had ever been born. And I was like, well, you're right. (laughs) She said, I remember calling your mom and just being like, can I just keep him for like a day or two? I just want to take him to the mall so people in the mall would just see him and just come and stop me and say how beautiful he is. And I was like, well, you're right. They should have done that. And so she's talking to me and she's telling me how good I am, how great I am. I mean, this is stuff you want grandmas to say about you. And so I was like, I love you. And she's like, well, she's about to hang up. And she said, well, don't forget. And she kind of lowered her voice a little bit, but everybody could still hear her because the FaceTime was kind of there in the lobby. She said, don't forget, you'll always be number one. Now, I need to tell you that I am the oldest grandchild on that side. So she has always said to me that I'm number one. But she only says that so everybody thinks she's talking about my order in the birth order of grandchildren. Really what she's saying is I am number one in life. And she thinks that I'm tops, like there's nobody better than me. Like here's what she thinks about. She thinks that I hung the moon. She thinks I am the favorite, favored, God's blessing rests on only me and our family. Like that's what she thinks. But don't tell my cousins that because they're convinced they might be the favorite too. Well, today we're talking about a guy in Scripture who was the favorite in his family. It's a guy by the name of Joseph. And as we continue this Family Matters series, we're talking about Joseph and his family and the circumstances of his life and this this family narrative that plays out beginning kind of in Genesis 35 or so. And you begin to see this play out all the way through really the end of the book of Genesis. But Joseph, at this point in the story, at the very beginning, is a young guy. He's kind of a teenager, 16, 17, 18 years old or so. And he has a dream. 
Now, he is the favorite son of his dad, and that really comes out of the relationship that his dad had with his mom. Now, his, his dad was, was married to his mom there, and, and he loved her more than anybody else in the entire world. And she gave to Joseph's father two sons, gave him Joseph and gave him Benjamin. And when she was giving birth to Benjamin, she died in the birthing process. And so now Joseph's father, his heart is broken. This woman that he loved more than anybody else in the world has died. And so even though he has 12 sons, these two boys hold a special place in his heart. And not only that, but the oldest of these two boys, Joseph, is that favored son. We read several things here that show us that, man, his father loves him and and kind of raises him up even out of these 12. And so Later in this story, we're going to see that his brothers are having to do things that he's not having to do. But what we see here in this part of the story is that Joseph has a dream. Many of you know some of this story, and so it's familiar to you. But Joseph has a dream, and kind of the summation of this dream, there's two parts to this, is the idea that Joseph at some point in his life is going to see his entire family come and bow down to him. Now, teenagers can be a little bit cocky. I would admit that even with teenagers sitting in the room. I was, you were probably. But can you imagine somebody in your family, 15, 16, 17 years old, 36 years old for that matter, doesn't really matter in age, if they came to you very sincerely and said to you, hey, listen, I just need you to know, just so you can prepare yourself, just in case you got that creaky knee, you need to kind of oil it up, because at some point you're going to bow your knee and you are going to worship me. Like, would you not just want to clock them? Right? If they were very sincere, if they were very, they were being honest. This is not some kind of joke. Or, like, they, were, they thought you were going to come and bow down. Well, this is kind of the reception that Joseph receives when he lays his dream out to his brothers. His brothers just kind of refuse to believe it, and they get mad at him. And his dad even, his, his dad who loves him more than anybody in the world, his dad even rebukes him. Though scripture says that his dad kind of pondered that in his heart, put it away in his heart, almost as if in the back of his head he thought, well, maybe he could. I don't know. Maybe that's going to come to pass. But he rebukes him. Later in the story, we see that 10 of his brothers are out in the field doing work. And so his dad sends him to go see his brothers. And so his dad had given him this coat of many colors, this bright, colorful kind of attire. And so he's wearing that as he goes out to see his brothers. And they see him coming from a really long distance away. So much so that they have time to talk about and create a plan of how they're going to deal with him. And they decide that they want to cause harm to him. And this is what it says in this story here in Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 19. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now, I have one younger brother. We fought all the time. When we were growing up, we still fight. Sometimes he'll be on the phone with me and I'll just slam the phone down. Like nobody frustrates me in the world like my younger brother. Nobody makes me laugh in this world like my younger brother. But when we were growing up, we fought about stupid stuff. We fought about all kinds of stuff. But there was never a moment where I wanted to kill him. Not literally. Like I wanted to kill him, but not really. I remember one time we were fighting. I don't even remember what we were fighting about. And I said to my dad, I was like, dad, please, just one time. Can I just punch him right in the face and not get in trouble? And my dad was like, absolutely. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. He was like, no, you can't do that. I never wanted to kill him. But I mean, here, his brothers are creating a plan. His, his own flesh and blood, they are creating a plan to kill him. Now, notice what they called him right here. They said, here comes this dreamer. Have you ever had a dream? Or maybe you wouldn't even classify it as a dream, but just like a hope 
a goal, a plan, an aspiration of some kind that you had and you didn't even really know how it was going to come to pass? Because, like, keep in mind, he didn't really have all the specifics worked out of how his family was going to come and bow down. Like, he just had a little piece of that, and he just had a little bit of the story. But he had this goal, this dream. I mean, it was something that he felt like God had given to him, maybe. And so he, he, he opens his mouth and shares that with his family, and they rebuke him for it. They get mad about it. Now, that's, a, that's an extreme example, but maybe you've had a goal a hope, a dream, a plan for your life, and you give that away to someone. Like, you know how fragile dreams are? Like, before you put a lot of details and meats and you know, meat on or whatever, like, you don't really have all the things. So you're just like, I, I think this is what I want to do with my life. Like, I think this is what I want to come to pass. Have you ever had anybody that you shared that with and they just crush it? Like, they don't support it. They don't affirm you and your ability to see that come to pass. Like, they just crush that dream in you. Like, you're like, this is maybe where I want to go to college. And they're like, you're not going to go to college. Nobody in your family's ever gone to college. You're like, well, yeah, but I mean, like, I really want to do, I want to change the course of the narrative. And they're like, Psh, that's stupid. Give up on that. Find a good job. And you're like, well, okay. And then maybe later or somebody else, you're like, well, this is what I want to do with my life. This is the job I want to pursue. And they're like, you're not good at that. Or you're like, well, this is the person that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And you're like, really? Like, that's that you're choosing that person or you think they'll like they just crush the dream well this is what happens here in this story where joseph's brothers hear this dream and they begin to resent him and hate him not just for the dream but even for the way his father treats him and so now they are plotting against him to destroy his life to kill him to to make sure that he is living no more well good news out of 12 brothers or 11 of joseph's brothers he's got one good one that even though he's having this conversation with him, he decides, I'm going to talk him into a different plan. And so instead of trying to kill Joseph, he says, what if we just kind of hide him? Like, what if we don't kill him? What if we throw him down here? We kinda, we'll come up with a better plan later. Like, let's not kill him. So Joseph shows up, and they throw him down there. They rip off his coat. They're going to tear it up. They're going to dip it in animal blood. They're eventually going to go back and tell his dad Hey, Joseph's dead. But what happens then is this band of Ishmaelites is coming by, and they're on their way to Egypt. And so these brothers get this great idea. Instead of killing him and it being good for nothing, let's sell him and make a little money ourselves. Now, I can't say I ever wanted to kill my brother, but I definitely wanted to sell him before. But, I mean, I was like, this sounds like a great idea to me when I'm reading this story. So this is what happens. Joseph's brothers are like, all right, let's sell him. They sell him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And so he goes now on his way to Egypt in slavery and in bondage through no fault of his own necessarily other than being his kind of the most loved son of his dad and sharing his dream with them. And he starts off towards Egypt with the Ishmaelites. The brothers take his coat, and they had ripped it up, and they dipped it in blood, like we said. And they go back to this dad, and he says, they say, Dad, you know, hey, Joseph, he died. An animal, a ferocious animal devoured him, and, and he died. And so what they were planning to do, they actually said that they had done, even though they changed the story. And for the next 22 years, while Joseph's living his life over there, the father believes that Joseph is dead, and the sons are living with a secret, hidden sin. A pain that they had invoked on someone else, they are now carrying that in secret for 22 years. I don't know if they ever had any conversations about, I wonder whatever happened to old Joseph. Do you think we should tell dad? I don't know if any of that happened, but for 22 years, they are left over here living their lives, doing life, while their brother Joseph is doing something else, and they are living in secret sin. 
And so the story of Joseph continues to play out. Those Ishmaelites take him to Egypt, and when he gets to Egypt, he begins working for a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was this higher up in Egypt. He was affluent. He was powerful. And so he has a lot of land there and a house and a lot of subjects. And so eventually when Joseph comes to work for him, Potiphar sees that there's something about him that he wants to kind of raise up. And so he takes Joseph and he raises him up to the second most powerful man in the house next to himself, next to Potiphar. So in this house, no one has more power and more authority in the house than Joseph except Potiphar. And that's a really, really incredible thing because he was this foreigner. He was this young foreigner. He's a, maybe a late teen, early 20s guy from a different country. And now Potiphar has raised him up into leadership. And so whatever he said, it was as if Potiphar was speaking. And he has control of everything in the house except for Potiphar's wife. Well, one day Potiphar's wife comes along and she decides that she likes old Joseph. He's a good-looking, handsome young guy. And so she likes old Joseph and so she'd like to have him for herself. And so she pursues Joseph and Joseph continues to rebut her advances. No, 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 I'm not going to do that. How could I even do that? Potiphar's given me kind of leadership over everything in his house and possession over everything in his house except you. So no, I'm not going to do that. Well, one day he finds himself in the house and Potiphar's wife is there and there's nobody else around. And so she makes an advance at him. And he again kind of turns her away. But when he's doing that, she kind of grabs his coat and he flees. Well, that's the second time he's left a jacket now. And so she goes out and she says to her husband and to the people that work there, look what this you know, foreign little Hebrew boy did. He made an advance at me. And when I pushed him away, he fled without his coat. Well, Potiphar then has no recourse except to believe his wife. And so he puts Joseph in prison. Now, interestingly to me, I don't want us to miss what could have happened here. This young Hebrew boy who was a foreigner in that land, a slave in the house of Potiphar, when this accusation comes from Potiphar's wife, he should have been put to death. And yet, he was not put to death. Instead, he was put in prison. I don't know that Potiphar believed that Joseph was innocent. I don't know if it was just because of his faithful service. I'm not really sure why. But what I do know is that this is the second time that there was an original plan that could have led to his death. And in both cases, his life was spared. And here's what I know about you and here's what I know about me. The enemy wants to kill us. The enemy wants to destroy us. That's what scripture tells us. And, and, and that's not a figurative type thing. He literally wants to kill you and to take your life because he knows that God has a plan for you and a design for you that is far greater than you and I can even imagine sometimes. But what I believe is that even when the enemy's trying to kill you, God is trying to keep you safe. I believe that God has a plan for you and a design for you. That even when the enemy is trying to kill you, God can keep you safe. Now, here's what I know. If you are in this room you have at least one thing in common with every other person in the room. You know what it is? You're alive, all right? If you're not sure, turn to your neighbor and say, am I alive? And let them answer you, and then they're going to get you checked out after service because there's something wrong with you. Every person in the room is alive. Everybody just take a deep breath. Let it out, right? You are alive. Now, here's what I believe about the fact that you are alive and in this room. It means that God is not done with you yet. It means that no matter what has happened in your life up to this point, if it's been filled with hurt and pain and regret and shame, it means that there is something in your future that God desires to use for his purposes. It means that if you are alive, that the enemy has tried to kill you, but he has been unsuccessful. And so that should give you hope to say, well, listen, maybe my life hasn't turned out the way I wanted it to up to this point, but maybe perhaps there is something that God is wanting to do in front of me 
that is more important than what the enemy was trying to do behind me. And so if you're alive today, you're in this room, then you have great hope that God, even when the enemy's trying to kill you, God can save you. And that's an important reality from this story. So Potiphar, instead of killing Joseph, sends Joseph to prison. Now Joseph goes to prison, and just like we see in the house of Potiphar, God is with him, God blesses him, his favor rests on Joseph. And so he is now raised up eventually in leadership in prison. Like, I don't know if that means he's the guy like in Shawshank Redemption walking around handing out books to the guys in the cell. I'm not really sure what leadership in prison looks like. But here's what I believe. He is raised up because of the favor of God, and there is something that sets him apart from the ordinary criminals that are in jail. He's in there through no fault of his own. And the head jailer has recognized that there's something different about this boy, and so he raises him up to leadership. And so now he is, again, the second most powerful man in this environment that he's in. And so he's walking around being in leadership and whatever that looks like for a period of time. And then all of a sudden, one day, randomly it would seem, in this prison, two guys show up. Now, one of the guys is the cupbearer for Pharaoh, and the other one is the baker for Pharaoh. The baker is an obvious idea here. He's baking and and cooking things for Pharaoh. The cupbearer would have been the guy that prepared the drinks for Pharaoh. He also would have been the guy that was kind of taste testing it to make sure nobody's trying to harm Pharaoh in that season of time. And so these two guys end up randomly, right, through no sovereignty of God, they end up in the same jail where this little Hebrew boy is in command. And so they show up and they're there and they have two dreams. They each have a dream. And Word gets spread through the prison that they've had a dream, and so they're trying to determine what they're supposed to do with it. And so Joseph comes to them, and he says, I can tell you what your dream means. Now, I find this so interesting, because Joseph here is embracing his ability to help them in the midst of their circumstance, even though his dream caused him personal harm. If you think about the circumstances of your life, I know in mine, if there's ever been a moment where I had a dream and I gave it to somebody and they crushed it, what do I do? I close that place of my heart off. I close that place of my life off. If there's ever a a situation or relationship or a circumstance where something happens to bring harm to me or to bring regret or shame on me, what do I do? I push that aside and I repress it and I say, no, no, I'm not going to deal with that anymore. I'm going to kind of live over here. But in this moment, Joseph embraces his past and the dream that he had back there and says, I can tell you what your dream means. Now, even in his past, he didn't have all the specifics about his own dream. Instead, he just had this general idea that his family would come and bow down. He didn't know when, he didn't know how. But when he's talking to this cupbearer and this baker, he gives them very specific interpretations about days and and, and how things are going to transpire. And so he says to the cupbearer, the interpretation of your dream, the dream that you've had, is that in three days, you're going to be restored. You're going to go back and start working for Pharaoh again. He says to the baker, you also have a three-day verdict on your life, but that verdict is for your harm. You're going to be put to death in three days. Very specific interpretation of this dream, these dreams that these two guys have. And so Joseph uses his past and the circumstances of his past and something that happened back there to help him in a present situation. You and I so many times shy away from allowing God to use us and use our past to do anything in the present. But what if the things that happened in your past were the exact tools that God wanted to use in your present and in your future? What if it's not by chance that you walked the journey that you walked to get you to today because of someone else that needs what you know about God in this moment because of God's faithfulness back there in your past? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 say this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion 
and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. What if the comfort God gave to you was not just for you, but it was so you could also give comfort to someone else who needed it? What if the circumstances of your past, God desired to use those things for someone else in your present day or even in your future? If I'm able to view God this way, if I'm able to see God working in this way, it changes the circumstances and the way that I view the circumstances that are happening in my life. Instead of it's like, woe is me, I can't believe I'm having to go through this. Oh God, why am I having to endure such hardship? I'm being persecuted as a believer. Like, instead of viewing it that way, what if we started asking some questions? God, what is it that you're trying to teach me here? What is it that you're trying to do in me here, God? What is it that you want to do through me here, God? What do I need to learn here because you want to use it to teach somebody else something in my future? God, what is it that you want to do in and through me? I'm not this cesspool of receiving all the goodness of God. I am actually a conduit by which God flows through for the sake of someone else. What if we viewed the circumstances of our life, both those that happen to us and those that happen because of us? Even our own sin can teach us about the forgiveness of God that we can forgive people in our future and help them to see a loving and faithful God. So Joseph interprets these two dreams, and he tells the cupbearer good news, and he tells the baker really bad news. And he says to the cupbearer just as he's leaving prison, please don't forget me. Please don't forget me. I'm here through no fault of my own. Like, I don't know if he just rehashed the whole story. Like, I was just going to do what my dad asked me to do, checking on my brothers. They threw me in a hole. Then they sold me to some Ishmaelites. Then I was working for Potiphar, being as faithful as I knew how. And then his wife lied about me. Now I'm in prison, forgotten about. I've interpreted your dreams. You can help me. Would you please not forget about me? Genesis 40, 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. You ever felt forgotten? You ever felt like, man, somebody that owed you something, somebody that should have been grateful to you, They weren't. They forgot. So Joseph spends another two years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And then one day, randomly, Pharaoh has a dream. A guy Joseph's never met has a restless night of sleep, and he has a dream. He actually has two dreams, but they're similar. It's about fat cows and skinny cows and fat ears of grain and skinny ears of grain. And he calls for everybody in the country that might be able to tell him what these dreams mean. Nobody can help him. Nobody can tell him what these dreams mean. And then the cupbearer, two years later, has remembered, oh yeah, Pharaoh, there's a guy over in one of your jails. You remember a while back, Pharaoh, when you got mad at me and the baker, like, let's not even worry about that right now. You remember when I went on that three-day vacation, you didn't see me for a little while, and then I came back, While I was on vacation, I met a guy, and I had a dream. He told me the meaning of that dream. He also told the meaning to the baker. And he's there, and I'm telling you, Pharaoh, he can help you. And so Pharaoh calls for Joseph to come out of prison to interpret this dream that no one else has been able to interpret. I don't know what kind of confidence you have to stand before the most powerful man in the world when you've been in prison for the last few years. 
But Joseph shows up with the confidence to say, I can tell you what it means. Not because of me, but because of Jehovah God, the God that lives in and through my people. I've had a dream, and I have the ability to tell you what it means because of the power of God. And he says, here's what's going to happen, Pharaoh. He says, the fat cows and skinny cows, the fat ears of grain, the skinny ears of grain, they all mean the same thing. What they're about is they're about the fact that there's going to be seven years of abundance, seven years of plenty. And then there's going to come seven years of famine. And in the seven years of plenty and abundance, you need to have somebody that you trust, somebody that's wise, to collect as much of that as they can so that during the seven years of famine, we have enough to live on and the whole world will come to you and want to take of the things that you have saved so that the whole world can be saved. They'll look to you as the provider of, their, of their, the riches that you have. Pharaoh says, okay, I'm looking at that guy. Now, this is a young foreign boy. Like, he's about 30 years old at this point. And so there's no reason that Pharaoh should have chosen him for this job except for the plans and the sovereignty of God. And so Pharaoh says, you're it. So he raises him up in power. He says, here's my ring. He says, whenever you say something, it's as if I'm saying it. He's now the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, just like he was the second most powerful man in Potiphar's house, just like he was the second most powerful man in the jail. The blessing and favor of God was on him as he was raised up now in power. And so he begins to save the, the food, the grain of the people of Egypt during that seven years of plenty. So that when the seven years of famine would come, that they would have something. Well, after the seven years of plenty, Joseph over here that's been collecting all this grain and all this food, the rest of the world begins to starve. And way over here, Joseph's daddy's house is getting hungry. And his sons are hungry. And so he says, I hear there's food in Egypt. Go and get some for us. And so the ten boys go. They leave Benjamin behind. The ten boys go and they come and they stand before Joseph. And immediately Joseph recognizes that these are his brothers. He hears a little bit of their story. He hears what's happening there in their home, and he begins to inquire about their family and about Benjamin, maybe their younger brother, and if their father's alive, and they begin to talk, and so he gives them grain eventually, and he plays a trick on them, and they leave, and they go back towards their father's house, and he wants them to bring Benjamin back to him. And so they go back, and they take the food back, and they see the trick that he's played on them where he, he gave all their money back for the grain that he, they had purchased. And so they get back to their father, and they say, hey, we've got to go and take Benjamin back. And he's like, no, 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 we're not taking Benjamin back. I've already lost the only other son of the woman that I love the most, and so we're not sending Benjamin back. And they're like, well, we've got to. He's like, nope, we're not doing it. So they eat all the grain that they've gotten. And then eventually they get hungry again, and they decide we need more food. And so the father says to his ten sons, go back and get some more grain. And they say, listen, the man told us he would not give us more grain unless we brought our youngest brother. So eventually they have this conversation about whose head is on the line if Benjamin doesn't make it back home safely. And so they have this conversation. And eventually they send Benjamin back with them, and they all come back to Joseph. And in that moment, his emotions completely overcome him, where he throws everybody out of the room. All the Egyptian workers see him crying and weeping so loudly they can hear it in the other rooms there of the palace where he's living. And there's an incredible emotion, emotion-filled scene that's happening. And so all of these people are thrown out of the room so that Joseph can have a conversation with his brothers. And this is what we read in Genesis 45, verses 3 through 8. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. 
And then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land and for the next five, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. What an incredible glimpse of God's grace and God's forgiveness through someone who had been hurt. I don't believe (coughs) that Joseph, as he's riding in the back of that wagon with the Ishmaelites going to Egypt, was sitting there going, wow, this is exactly how God is bringing my dream to pass. I don't think when he's sitting in that little room, if it plays out in my head the way I think it is, I don't think he's kind of sitting in the side room after Potiphar's wife has made this accusation and Potiphar's trying to figure out what's going to happen to him. And he's listening to Potiphar and his wife argue through the little thin walls of the house there at Potiphar's house. And he's listening to what's going to happen. I don't think when Potiphar walks in and says, Joseph, I'm going to send you to prison. I don't think he was thinking, man, this is exactly how I thought this would play out. I don't think when he's walking through the hallways of that jail handing out books off the cart, if that's how it played out. But he's thinking, yeah, this is exactly how I thought God would bring the dream to pass. I don't think that in the midst of being forgotten for two years by the cupbearer, who he begged to remember him, that he thought, thank you, God, for the plan that you're working in my life. I think he was hurt like you and I. I think he was upset. I think he was uncertain about what God might be doing. I think he was unsure about why his brothers would try to do him harm. And yet, in this moment, he chose to forgive them. Here's what I know. The one who is the victim always holds the power of forgiveness. The victim always holds the power of forgiveness. The one who has done harm should be the one to ask for forgiveness, but often that doesn't take place because of their own guilt or their own shame for the hurt that they have caused to someone else. And so it's left to the victim, the one who's been done wrong, the one who has been hurt, to extend something that they don't even believe maybe that the other person deserves to say, I forgive you. And to even see the grace of God and the sovereignty of God at work to go, listen, you meant me harm, but God had a better plan. You tried to kill me. The enemy wanted to destroy me, but God was saving me for something in the future. From 18 years old for 22 years, we see him walking a scenario and a story that none of us would have ever dreamed up, but God did. Because God needed to get him to the right spot for the salvation of his people. Eventually in the story, they're going to bring the dad and the family and all the livestock all to Egypt so that they could be saved during this season of time. And it plays incredibly into the hands of God and the story of God because now they're in captivity and in just a few years, Moses is going to show up and take them out of captivity. It's incredible how the story of God plays out when you read it in the larger context. But in the moment, it still hurts. In the moment, it's still confusing. In the moment, we're not sure what God might be doing. It just hurts. We're the victim. We've been done wrong. 
And yet, the victim always holds the power of forgiveness. Well, how did Joseph even get to that place? How could he forgive? How could he tell to his brothers, listen, what you meant for harm, God meant for good. God sent me ahead of you. God sent me to this place. I missed a portion of the story. I forgot to tell you something way back there in Genesis 41. Because right before the famine happens, Joseph actually has some sons. He has some sons in that story, and he names his sons something that actually declares something that was being birthed in him about the goodness of God. And I want us to read it in Genesis chapter 41, 51, and 52. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. When Joseph's brothers show up and he forgives them, they call for his father. His father comes to Joseph. And he's weeping and he grabs a hold of his son and he kisses him on the neck. And he's loving the fact that he has this son that he thought was dead is now alive. And he gets to meet his two grandsons. Those two grandsons standing next to their father in front of their grandfather declare that I have forgotten all of my troubles and God has blessed me in the land of my suffering. Maybe you're in a land of suffering. Maybe you've got some troubles back there behind you. Some things that have caused you harm and caused you pain and you don't really know how to deal with those things. I would encourage you to follow this example of Joseph. I want to ask you a few questions that just came to me this week. I believe through the leading of God as I was preparing for this. These questions. Who has hurt you? Who are you holding a grudge against? Who caused you to feel abandoned? Who did something terrible and unthinkable to you? Who lied about you? Who falsely accused you? Who forgot about you? Who broke their promise? Who should have been grateful to you but wasn't? You know, the answer to all of those questions, whether it's one person or several people, is actually the answer to a different question today. And the new question is, who should you forgive? That person you were thinking about, that person that's the answer to one or more of the questions that I just asked, is actually the answer to the question, who should you forgive? You know, when I was a little boy, my family lived in a house that had one of those stand-up showers that was kind of tile, and then there was like a metal door frame and then like frosted glass inside the metal. Everybody know what I'm talking about? You've seen those even if you've never been in one. We had one of those. When I was a little kid, I was probably five, six years old, and I was getting out of the shower one day, and my foot slipped, and I fell, and I hit my chin right on that metal frame. Yeah, exactly. It hurt like crazy. It bled like crazy. They had to take me to the emergency room and get stitches. I was a little kid. I think I got a stitch, but it felt like, man, I had died. My chin swelled up. I mean, it was so incredibly painful. Well, a number of years have passed since that event. And and I got a little hair on my chin today. 
I mostly wear that, so because if I'm clean shaven, I look like I'm about eight years old. But I've got a little hair on my chin today, and you can't see it, but right underneath here is the scar that was left by that event. Like when I'm rubbing like this, my fingernail gets caught on the place where the skin has come back together to heal. Here's what I know about scars. They are a reminder of what happened back there, but they don't hurt anymore. When Joseph was naming his son, God has caused me to forget all of my troubles back there. I don't think that meant he didn't remember because later he actually forgave his brothers for what they did. He remembered enough to retell the story. But I think what he was saying is God has allowed it not to hurt me anymore. And so today for you, the circumstances of your life and the things that you're facing, I don't know what those things are, but I believe that God can also heal you. There might be a scar that's left there in your heart and in your emotional psyche and in your life, but I believe that God can take away the hurt from that experience. And I believe that even in the land of your suffering, God can be blessing to you. You need a Manasseh. You need an Ephraim that says, God is blessing me in the land of my suffering and he's causing me to forget the pain that I experienced back there. So who hurt you? Who did unimaginable things to you? Who should have been grateful to you but wasn't? Who lied about you and forgot about Like, the person that's the answer to that question or those questions is actually the answer to a different question. Who should you forgive? We tell this story today in the context of family because it's usually those that know us the closest that can wound us the deepest. Those who see us in our most vulnerable state that know us so well. So maybe the person that you're answering those questions about is a a loved one, a spouse or a former spouse, a child or a parent, an aunt, an uncle, someone extended family. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a coworker, a friend, a former friend. But today I believe that the most freeing thing that you can do as the victim who holds the power is forgive them. It's hard. It's not going to be easy. But my prayer for you is that you have enough boldness and confidence to have a hard conversation and pick up the phone and call them, shoot them a text, send them an email, write them a note, show up on their doorstep and say what you meant for harm, God is working out for my good. And I want you to know that there's a scar there, but it doesn't hurt me anymore. Let's pray. God, I thank you today for the truth and the reminder of who you are. I thank you, God, that you comfort us with all comfort so that we can comfort those who need that same comfort from you. I thank you, God, that we don't have to wear the pain of our past hurts. I thank you, God, that even though the enemy's trying to kill us, that you are saving us. And if we're still alive, it means the enemy has been unsuccessful and that you have something destined for our future. So, God, let us live in that hope today. Let us live in that reality and that confidence and that boldness of who you are what you desire for our lives. Today, I pray for the confidence and the boldness to forgive those who have hurt us. God, if it's a family member or a friend, if it's a coworker, God, no matter who it is, I pray today that you would help us to zoom out and see the larger story of God being written in our lives and to give freedom to someone who probably doesn't deserve it, except that you forgive us. And now we're called to forgive them. Help us to have the boldness to do it. 
Help us to have a peace about it. If they receive it, it's incredible. If they reject it, our job is still done because we've been obedient to you. We thank you, God, for who you are and what you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Thanks again for listening today. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.com.